But the, the Bible talks about unity so often because, he know, because the, God knows it's such a problem for us. That as a people, as a, as a humanity, we struggle to be united with each other. And even, I don't even know if I'm going to say especially, but at least even in the church. And so we're going to be spending a couple of weeks in the book of Ephesians today and in some other places in the next couple of weeks. And so our passage today is Ephesians chapter 2. If you do have a Bible, get it out with me. We will be going through a lot of this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I will read it for us. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer aliens. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray. Holy and merciful Father, we ask that you would grant us grace and strength and peace. This is a complicated text, uh, complicated no matter how long you spend working on it, uh, studying it. There's always new things to be seen. And so I ask that you would help us to have laser vision and see exactly what you would have for us today. God, that we would tackle this um, issue that is very clearly an issue still in this world and in this church, that we long often to be masters of our own uh, lives, and then in so doing, we look down on other people and we divide ourselves. And so we must fight against that. But we fight by looking to your gospel, to the cross, to your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would help us to do that now for the sake of our unity, for the sake of the glory of your name, for the sake of the salvation of all of those who are lost. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. So uh, my dad is in town with his wife and we took a trip up to um, Flanders Fields Museum. I don't know how to say the town, Y-P-R-E-S. Someone can tell me later. Anyway, it was wonderful, uh, very cool museum having to do with World War I. And if you know anything about World War I, uh, there were some interesting things that happened, especially in 1914. It was December of 1914, and there were German, British, and French forces engaged in what I'm sure you know as bloody slogging warfare. It was terrible. They called it the Western Front, located just north of us in Belgium. But in December of 1914, right around Christmas time, something astonishing happened. Something that is hard to actually believe. The men from these warring countries laid down their arms, crossed into neutral territory, 
and met these other warring people and made peace. They made peace. It was for just a little while, a few days, but the spirit of Christmas compelled them to stop fighting. And so now it is called the Christmas Truce of 1914. If you, go through the, um, if you go through the museum, there's a section where they have actors on video um, doing reenactments of the soldiers back then. And you can hear throughout the, uh, the museum singing, singing of Christmas carols, Silent Night, O Come All You Faithful. The Christmas Truce of 1914. They were widespread and they were so successful, the men who only days before were shooting and launching bombs at each other came together in peace. They exchanged gifts and food, sang songs, played games, freed POWs, allowed the warring countries, the opposing countries, to retrieve their fallen men. In many ways, it was a miracle. Now, if you know the history, you know that it, of course, didn't last. The war lasted four more years. Commanders were furious with the men who participated, commanded them never to do it again. When chemical weapons were introduced later in the convening years, bitterness and animosity increased dramatically. Peace would, of course, not come again until the end of the war. Now, we celebrate this story because it is so strange, as unique. What is far more normal, what we expect to happen, is not peace, but war. And I don't just mean physical war on the battlefields. The history of the human race is marked mainly by conflict and division, not unity and peace. Racial hatred, socioeconomic disparity, marital woes, and in the church, within the Christian faith. As first a Christian and then a pastor, I have seen disunity, anger, hatred, exclusion, church splits, divisions, racism, gossip. I could go on and on. But two things give us hope. Two things give us hope. First, this is not what God wants for us. He did not create us so that we would be disunited. He wants his people to live in unity. And second, by his grace and his power, he will do it. He will make it happen, and he must. The church, the local church, and the church universal is in large measure the hope of the world. Yes, for our good, but also for the salvation of the lost. We must bind together, set aside our differences, celebrate our uniqueness, and display the holy love that we have for God and each other. And how do we do that? How do we fight for that? By knowing who we are. That we are a new humanity in Christ. First point this morning. <laughs> Saved from each other. That's the first. Saved from each other. Okay, so listen, to unpack this text, you've got to see where Paul is headed. It's complex. It's probably a long sentence in the Greek. So you need to check out where he is going. And so we're going to jump right to verse 19. It says this. So then... 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians are united in Jesus Christ. That is his point. Every person who has been saved by grace through faith is now united with every other person who has been saved by grace through faith. Every person who has been saved by grace through faith is now united with every other person who has been saved by grace through faith. That is his conclusion. That is where he's going. And it is a glorious conclusion. But it is glorious in part because of where we started. Where things got started. The people of Christ have come a very long way. They say that the universe is 94 billion light years across. 94 billion light years long. Those who are now in Jesus Christ have come further. Ephesians 2.12 says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So Gentiles, the story here is that the Gentiles at one time were not the covenant people of God. They were not the covenant people of God. They were closed off from his promises, from his covenant. They were closed off from relationship with him. They were estranged from the people of God. So that's the Gentiles. That's the one side of it. But Paul is actually really talking about the other side. And the other side is how the ethnic Jews were treating the Gentiles. How they related to those who were not ethnically and religiously Jewish. So Ephesians 2.11, back up one verse. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, that's complicated, but we can unpack it. What does it mean to be the uncircumcision as opposed to the circumcision? Well, Paul is using this. He's reminding the church that the uncircumcision referenced the Gentiles, but it was a word that was meant to be a slur, a term of derision. It was meant to be something like a four-letter word, a racial insult, the worst ethnic slur. You are not like us, the Jews were saying. You are not as good as us, they were saying. We are the circumcision people. You are the uncircumcision people. You do not have the outward sign of the covenant of God, of the covenant of promise. And so therefore, you are outside of the love of God, of God. And so Paul is talking about this because he wants to remind the church where they came from. He is reminding them that Jews at one point were arrogantly and cruelly ridiculing the Gentiles and that the Gentiles hated them for it. They hated each other. And so Paul calls it something. He, gi he gives us a picture. He says that this animosity, this disunity created an interpersonal spiritual wall of hostility. Wall of hostility. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Scholars believe that when Paul wrote this, 
He had in mind a very physical place. This wall of hostility referenced in his mind the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple. The temple was large, had many sections to it, many rooms. And even if you were a Gentile convert to to Judaism, there were places where you were not allowed to go because you were not ethnically Jewish. You were not allowed to go in certain places in the temple. They were off limits to you. And so there were signs posted throughout the temple reminding Gentiles that they should remain separate. They should remain far off. They were excluded. Now we know this. We know this is true because we have actually found the signs. Archaeologists have found the signs. Here's one right there. It was written in the Greek. And the English translation goes this way. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Yikes. The Jews believed that they were superior to the Gentiles. They believed that they were better than, more worthy than their human counterparts. So they divided They believed that it was their responsibility to keep them away, to keep them out. Now, this, of course, is very wrong. I think that we can say that together. But I hope that we can say together also that it is very human. It is very human. Anything that makes you feel superior to others could lead to hatred, division, unforgiveness, and more. Your race color of your skin, your socioeconomic status, how much money you have, your level of intelligence, your political persuasion, your beauty, your physical beauty, your cultural background, your morality, what you believe is right and wrong. All of those things can be used to exclude, to divide, to mistreat others. Now the Jews themselves, they boasted what? In their circumcision. Which meant that they boasted in their outward sign of the covenant with God. We are the best, they were saying. You are not. Rather than feeling deep humility and gratitude for God's grace, they felt entitled to it. When you feel entitled to something, you begin to feel superior. And when you feel superior, you begin to exclude, mistreat, and divide. So as a child, I was usually the last kid picked on the playground for basketball or soccer or whatever it is. I'm filled in a room with a bunch of basketball players, by the way, professional basketball players. So you just just confessing here, not very athletic, especially back then. I was always one of the last picked. And it's miserable. It's terrible. Now, if you know how this, I don't know how it is here, but this is how it is right there. It's a terrifying scene. The two best players, they become captains, and the captains, they start to pick the next best players. And then, if you get picked last, what are they, what are they saying about you? Not that you're last best. No, you're just last. Not so good for my fragile little ego. But I will never forget one day, I don't know why it happened, but one day I got picked first or second. I wasn't the captain, but I was first or second. And with astonishment, I walked up and I stood next to my friend. And I thought, 
wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and immediately, do you know what was the emotion in my mind and my heart? Superiority. Look at all these losers sitting down in front of me. No, you don't want him. You want her. Not her. Him. How quickly I became conceited. Superior. Humans have the tendency to elevate those things that make them unique. We say, I'm good at sports, so I am worthy. I make a lot of money, so I am good. I am smart and cultured, so I am a good person. But this comes with another side. When we do this, when we elevate what makes us unique, what we tend to do, what the human heart does as default motive is say, anyone who is not like me in these ways is therefore not good. Anyone not like me is unworthy. Some elevate money. Others, the color of their skin. Some believe you must have the right politics. Others think that how we behave is the most important. Many elevate or overemphasize culture. Culture, I'm going to hone in on this one, on culture. By culture, I mean the non-moral ways which we choose to live. The idiosyncratic values of a culture. And it can be anything, honestly. Those things that are not really moral, they're not right or wrong, but they're things that we do kind of naturally, either as humans or as a family or as a, as, a, um, as a town or as a city or country or just as a people, as a culture. So we tend to take things like cleanliness, the music we listen to, the ways we dress, being on time, one's home country, being really organized, being a free, free spirit, speaking a different language, and a million other things, probably literally. And we take those and we overemphasize them. We elevate them in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. And we make those very good things into ultimate goods. And when we make them ultimate in our lives, what do we do? We rise above and we look down. We look down on others for not being the same, for not valuing what we value. So a lot of us went to Shape Fest yesterday, last evening. It's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. Over 30 countries getting to put their culture, their food, their people on display. And it is a celebration. And I celebrate by eating all of the food. And I glory in it. But as happy as I was to see all of that, I know and I knew that the things that make these countries unique can just as easily divide as unite. But what a privilege to live here, friends. To celebrate so many cultures unlike your own. To humbly learn and adapt. To root out the superiority, superiority in our hearts. That is unbelievable. A privilege. And we must listen to it. We must enter into this action. Because the world, the devil, and our own hearts tell us that what makes us unique makes us better than all the others. And of course when we do that, we alienate. But we don't just alienate. We alienate not just others, but also ourselves. Of course we drive others away with our subtle, 
or not so subtle hatred. But the irony is that when we alienate others, we alienate ourselves. When we surround ourselves only with those who look like us, act like us, have the same background as us, we miss out on the absolute wonder of connecting with the people of God, those who are not like us. And I hope you've been asking yourself this question as I've been talking, but I'm going to ask it openly. What about you could lead to you feeling superior? What about you has led, could lead, will lead you to alienating? Not just the people who don't come to our church, the people that you work with, but even people in this church. Saved from each other to saved to each other. We're not just saved from each other, but now we are saved to each other. So Paul, the apostle, says in verse 15 that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. We have that wall in our minds. But then he says it again with, with, um, with much more emphasis, much more strongly, down in verse 16, saying that the hostility was killed. He didn't just break down the wall, but he killed the hostility. And he had to kill it. How? How would he bridge this divide? And the answer is by making two into one. By making the two one. So verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. That is the goal of the creation of the new humanity. To be created into one new humanity. But you have to know that nothing on earth, earth can do this. Nothing inside us or outside of us is powerful enough to cover over our differences, heal our hurts, and unite us in peace. What is needed is God. We need a shared identity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do it. D.A. Carson, a theologian and writer, says it bluntly. The church is made up of natural enemies. Of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of, this, of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen and amen. The church is meant not to be another place of division, but the place where peace is won, where it is crafted, cultivated, fought for. The church is meant to be a wonderfully beautiful and diverse tapestry. A brilliant and colorful tapestry of God's creation. Different colors and personalities and gifts. Different backgrounds and struggles. Of people existing in common spirit for a common purpose in peace and unity. And it is because Jesus canceled the external works of the law and wrote the law in our hearts. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But we share the same spirit. We are united in 
Christ. Can you imagine how radical it would have been for Jews to hear this once very prominent Jew say this to the Galatian church? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is not just a, I hope this happens. Wouldn't this be nice? He is saying that it is true now. With the coming of Christ, everything is different. Enemies have become one. We are Christians first, not our money. We are Christians first, not our race. We are Christians first, not our culture. There is nothing external that should divide us. But I want to say in the same breath, that our common unity in Christ should enable us to celebrate our differences. Our unity together should help us and enable us to celebrate how we are different from each other. To be united is, to not, is not to lose your uniqueness. To be united is to exist in a community where your uniqueness is celebrated. We do not stop being black or white or Latino or female or male or introverted or extroverted or tall or short or short or Belgian or American or Lithuanian and on and on and on. When God is our king, we do not use these differences to feel superior and to divide. But we see these things, these amazing things as things to celebrate as one in Christ. Saved from another, but now saved in another. We are saved from each other. We are saved to each other. And now we are saved in another. Okay, so how does God do it? How does he bring people so different? People who, as D.A. Carson says, are natural enemies together as one. And the answer is always that we need changed hearts. Any problem of sin that we have in our life means that we need a changed heart. Not changed circumstances, not changed cultures. We don't even need just more time. We could live a billion years and we would still at some level hate each other. The problem is always the darkness of our hearts. But in Christ, he changes our hearts in two ways. We learn from the text two ways. He takes something away from us and then he gives something to us. He changes our hearts by taking away something from us and giving something to us. First, he takes away any reason that we have to boast. Any reason that we should feel like we are better than anyone else. So verse 14 again says this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Jesus, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, he made peace by abolishing the law and all of the ways that the people had expressed it. What does that mean? It means that he took away the outward signs of God's covenantal promise. It was at first, for thousands of years, the circumcision. That was the outward expression. And also following the Ten Commandments and doing all of the different ritual practices and sacrifices that God told them to do. But in the death of Jesus Christ, he took it away. All of it. 
He took away all of that because it was making them to boast in themselves. He took away the thing that they were using to alienate the Gentiles. And as he takes it away, he shows them. He shows them that in the world, there was nothing except Christ that could save them. There is nothing inside themselves or outside themselves that could save them. And so Paul is reminding them yet again, you are needy. You are lost apart from Jesus Christ. There is nothing inside you that should make you boast. Verse 17, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So the far off people are the Gentiles. We know that. They are scattered and they are being brought in. But then he says, It is being preached to you who were near. Those are the Jews. The Jews were as close as you could be. They had the commandments. They had the scriptures. And yet, why was peace preached to them? Because they were not actually in the household of God. They were lost apart from Christ. And so what he's saying is that we are all the same. We must have that thing that makes us boast. That thing that says, I am unique and I am better. And take it away. Because the reality is that our sin has alienated us, not mainly from each other, but from God. And so now in Christ, we have nothing to boast about. That is what the gospel does. It takes away our arrogance, our superiority, our boasting. It takes away our basis for believing that we are better than anyone else. The gospel reminds us that there is nothing in us that saves us. It is entirely by him. If you look at the passage right before this, the famous section where it says, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. And friends, this is for our joy and our peace. When we have those things taken away, they are, it is like having the chains and shackles removed from us. Those things are holding us down. Those things that we believe make us better than others. They are killing us. And in Jesus Christ, those are taken away for good. So we have something taken away, but we have something given. And what is given is Christ himself. Verse 16. That Jesus came. Sorry, that's not the right one. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Listen closely here. The cross was the ultimate place of derision. It was the ultimate place of scorn. Anyone who died on a cross was the worst of the worst and lived under a curse. And so when you were there and you were a Jew or you're Gentile, you would look up on that cross and if you had seen him, he would have been above you, but you would have looked down on him. You would have looked down on him. You would have felt superior to him. He is a, a thief or a murderer. He is a blasphemer. Anyone who goes up on that cross must deserve it. And if you were on that cross then you are worse than me. And so as they saw him on that cross, they, they hated him. We must admit that we hated him. 
We felt superior to him. And yet he is the only one, that Jesus is the only one who did not deserve it. He is the only one who was actually superior, who is truly, breathtakingly holy and good. But despite this, out of his love, he went to the cross as the object of scorn and shame anyway for us. And as he did that, we were united with him. He killed the hostility between humans by killing the hostility in our own hearts. Paul says in Galatians 6, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Hear this very clearly. Jesus is our boast. Jesus is our boast. He is our common cause. He is what unites us. It is not our skin color, our tax bracket, our culture, our IQ, our EQ. What unites us is Jesus. He is our peace. And we are united as one people in him. Friends, do you believe that? Is it showing in your life? Is it showing as you mix with the people of our church? Is it showing as you mingle out there with all of the other people in this culture, in our area? Is it showing in your actions? Are we growing in our Christ-centered love for each other and for other people? Russell Moore writes it like this. He says, We are not getting anywhere as long as we gather in church with people we'd gather with if Jesus were still dead. We're not getting anywhere as long as we gather in church with people we'd, rather, we'd gather with if Jesus were still dead. This is the most diverse church I have ever been in. And it's the most diverse area, place that I've ever lived and worked. And it is a diversity that is beautiful, fascinating. But it will take work to understand the gospel, to believe it, and then to make it to deepen our unity together. And so I ask and I pray that you lay down your arms. I pray that you would see Jesus and by his grace be generous, loving, celebrating. For the sake of Christ our Lord, let us be united together. Let's pray. Holy and Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be a church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that you are alive, that you are alive forevermore, and that has changed everything. That has changed everything from darkness to light, from death to life, from disunity to unity. Lord, I pray first for ears. I pray, pray for ears to hear vertically and horizontally that we would hear first from you, that we would see where we have fallen short, where we have sinned. And then I pray that we hear horizontally, that we would listen to each other, that we would hear and understand the other person sitting across the table from us. We are united in Christ, and so we should be humble enough to listen. Help us to listen. And Lord, I pray then for action that we would take it upon ourselves to make this the most diverse and united body possible. That is impossible without us. 
or without you. That is impossible without you as our Lord and our Savior. But we know that with you all things are possible. Do this to the glory of your name for our joy, for the salvation of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.